Okay, um, a whole bunch of stuff we needed to do this morning, so let's just jump right into His Word, okay? If you have a Bible with you, you are going to want to somehow find the book of Ephesians and get to it as quickly as possible, because there in the book of Ephesians, you're going to find where we've been camping out these last several months, okay? And as you're turning there, let me just tell you about something that happened in my life maybe about 15 years ago. Um, I had this opportunity to go to China, and, and, you know, the Lord has blessed me with opportunities to travel all over the world to share His um, message and love on people wherever I've gone, and, and China was one of the places I had never been. And as you probably know, uh, the gospel and, and uh, proselytizing and preaching the gospel in China is not welcomed by the government. It's actually loosened up a little bit, but it goes through ups and downs. This is 15 years ago. It was pretty tight. And, uh, and basically what I did was I was there to teach a seminary class for pastors. But these are not pastors who uh, are, are like the pastors you know in the United States where they have all kinds of access to resources and education and, and all of that. The, the church there, most of the church is underground. They're, they, they're, they're not known. They can't publicly meet. They can't publicly share the gospel. And they specifically are looking for pastors because if they can get a hold of the pastors and snuff them out and get rid of them, then they figure they can snuff out the church. And so in China, the church is growing faster than any place else in the world. It might be growing faster than any place else in the history of the world. If you don't know this, in, in China where it's illegal to be a Christian, um, there are probably more Christians in China today than there are people in the United States. Because, because of what God is doing as these faithful saints just continue to quietly share the gospel and love people and set an example. At any rate, I was there um, to, to uh, teach this group, and, and it was all very secret. It was in, a, in an undisclosed place. They, they literally took me there at midnight. They, they put me in the back of a car between a couple of Chinese guys in the middle, and they took me through um, side streets, and we drove for an hour or so to get to wherever it was that I was. To this day, I still don't know where I was. They, they sort of snuck me in the building because the whole idea was, um, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I don't really look Chinese. <laughs> and so, so yeah, they, they apparently thought I would be noticed somehow, right? And so they were really trying to just kind of keep me undercover, keep me blending in just so that nobody would notice me. I had to stay inside that building the whole time. If a knock came at the door, there was this closet I had to go and hide in until... So it was, it was like that, right? But then at the end, after that was finished, I had a day before my flight out of there. And so I had a day to be a tourist. Now, it's perfectly legal to be an American tourist there. So I was fine now. So I didn't know what to do, but I wanted to see something. I was all the way in China. So I wanted to see the Great Wall... So I went to a hotel and I said, do you arrange tours? And they said, yes, here, give us your money and get on this bus. And I got on this, I'm all by myself in China, okay? I get on this bus, God knows where they're taking me, right? But I paid them a bunch of money and they said, oh yes, we'll take you where you want to go. Okay, so off we go. We get to the Great Wall of China, pretty awesome, right? And as we get to the Great Wall, it's this area where all the tour buses go. But, but still, even though it's kind of a touristy area, None of the tourists look like me, and, and everybody there looks to me very similar. They all have similar 
uh, hair color. They all have similar facial features. They all have similar skin color. They all speak a similar language. And none of them look anything like me. And I didn't realize how weird looking I was until I got there and I realized how strange I was. And I had never in my life had this experience before. But there were people, literally lots of people at the Great Wall who were pointing at me and saying whatever it is they were saying. I'm sure they were saying, my goodness, he's handsome or something like that, right? But I didn't understand the language. They're saying something, right? And they're just pointing at me like, like little kids are pulling on their mom's skirt and pointing and giggling like, like they're seeing some freak or something. And I'm like, wow. And then I look around and I realize I'm like this much taller than everybody else in the area. And people literally, I'm not making this up, literally started bringing me their children and asking if they could have their children's picture taken with me right? And I'm posing for pictures and all this. And I don't know why I, I was so interesting to them. Some of them would come up and rub my belly for luck. I'm not sure what that was about, but there's something. But the point is, I really, really stood out in this place. And my whole goal the rest of the time had been blend in, blend in, don't get noticed, don't get noticed. You know what I learned? When you are radically different, there's no way to blend in. There's no way to blend in. And I was so different that they noticed me immediately. And, and there was just a ripple in the crowd. And literally, people were getting other people and pointing. And it was the strangest thing. I couldn't blend in. Here's the deal. So many of us as Christians in America today are working so hard to blend in. We want so much to not seem weird and to not seem strange, and we want to fit in, and we don't want people to, to, you know, ostracize us because of our faith and all that kind of stuff, and we're doing everything we can to dress the right way and talk the right way and act the right way so that people will accept us so that we will blend in. But here's the deal. As I read my Bible, it consistently calls me to be radically different. And when you are radically different, there is no way to blend in. Now, we should be reaching out to our community. We should be loving people who are not Christians. We should be building friendships with people who do not know Jesus. But I don't know who gave us this idea that it was important for us to somehow look like everybody else and not look different. Guys, if you're a Christian, you're different. Get used to it. Get used to it. You should be living your life in such a way that people don't necessarily think you're weird, that people don't think you're strange, but that they immediately recognize that you're different. That anybody who spends any amount of time with you and they see how you react to difficulty and it's so different than anybody they've ever seen. They listen to the way you talk to people and how you encourage them when you could tear them down. And they go, wow, that's different. They see the way you, you, you get offended. Someone does something offensive to you without you getting offended. And they go, wow, that's different. You should stick out like a sore thumb. People should know if you're a Christian that you're different. We should be walking differently. That's what it says in Ephesians chapter 4. Remember, we're in the book of Ephesians. We've been in Ephesians for months now. And I want you to go to Ephesians 4. And uh, in, ch in chapter 4, verse 1, I want us to be reminded of the context before we move on to today's passage. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, I beg you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, 
Paul says, I am begging you, stop trying to fit in. Stop trying to look like all the other Ephesians. Actually, you're different, and you should walk like it. People should be able to tell by the way you live your life that there's something radically different about you on the inside. Not because you make them uncomfortable, not because you look down upon them, not because you judge them, but because you live your life with integrity in a society in which that is so rare. And so he says, walk differently. He says it again in verse 17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their minds. God is serious about this stuff. And he wants to get really practical. He's been talking about laying aside the old self and putting on the new man. And he's trying to get very, very practical because he knows our tendency. Our tendency is to try to separate our spiritual life from the rest of our life. And, and to say there, there are times when I am spiritually focused, like Sunday mornings at 11. I, I'm gonna, that's, that's going to be a very spiritual time for me. That's my spiritual life. Or there's a certain amount of my finances that I set aside to give to God. That's my spiritual offering. That's God's part, and the rest is my part. We have this tendency to separate out our lives like we're spiritual at one time and not spiritual at another time, like we're followers of Jesus at one time, but not followers of Jesus at another time. And he knows we have this tendency, and he's calling us to do something about it. And he's calling us to do something about it in the most practical places and the most practical ways. And that brings us to today's passage, which is Chapter 4, verse 28 of Ephesians. He who steals must steal no longer. And you're thinking, oh, finally, a message that's not going to convict me. I haven't stolen anything since so I was a kid, and I took up some candy at the liquor store. It's been a long time since so I've stolen anything. I'm not going to be offended. I'm just going to sit back and watch other people squirm while he preaches. Well, good luck with that. Let me continue. <laughs> Chapter 4, verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Now, let me just stop for a second and let you know what I'm doing and why. As I'm going through the book of Ephesians, I, I, I have this sense that you know, I need to break it up into manageable chunks, but we need to get through this. I don't want it to be 2096, and I'm up here still trying to finish Ephesians chapter 6, right? So... I'm trying to move this along, but as I was working through Ephesians 4 this week, and I came to verse 28, it, it, was, it was like I, I came across something that was so significant and so valuable and so practically applicable that I felt like it's worth it for us to just stop here and just deal with one verse today. It would be like, you know, it's 1849, you came out here as a part of the gold rush, you're... you're you're, you've left your family behind, you've risked your life, you're doing everything that you can just to, be, to have this chance to get rich by striking gold, right? And you have this partner and you're out there digging in the, in the dirt and, and you're up in the hills and you, you all of a sudden hit some rocks and as you begin to clear it away, you notice some gold coloring in those rocks and as you dare clear more of it away, you, you see a gold nugget that is the size of your head. Now, you just see the top of it there and you go, gosh, I wonder how deep it goes. I wonder how big this thing is. This is awesome. This is huge. 
And yet you think to yourself, yeah, but to get to this is going to take some digging and some blasting. I'll probably have to buy some more tools. I might have to get some partners. It might take me a month to get this gold out of the ground. So you know what? Instead of this, I think I'll just go down the way and see if I find some other gold elsewhere. Would you do that? No. Once you come across a nugget and you go, oh my goodness, this is the nugget, you stop and you make the investment and you dig. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to dig a little bit into this verse where he tells us to stop stealing and start working and sharing. And it seems like the simplest of verses, so easy, let's just move right past it, but it's shining to me. And I look at it and go, this one we got to stop and dig. So that's what we're going to do a little bit today. 1989, I took a job. Um, I was in youth ministry in those days, and I didn't I couldn't make enough money in ministry to support my family, and so I was always trying to find the right job that would just support my ministry habit, so to speak, and, um, and I was offered this job. I had a background in sales. I had a background in business management, and uh, I was offered this position by this construction company, and basically, um, they wanted me to be in sales and management for their company to, to manage one of their divisions, and so... Um, I took the job and said, okay, this is going to be great. It'll pay me enough. It'll give me weekends off to do my ministry. It's going to be great. And, and when I went on the first day, they said, okay, here's what we're going to do. You're going to be managing this crew of guys that's going to be going out in the field and doing this physical labor, um, but you don't really know anything about what they do because you've never been in this business before. So what we're going to do is we're going to spend the first three months of your employment, we're going to put you in the field with these guys. And whatever they do, you're going to do. You're going to learn how to do all this stuff so that when you're their boss, they will respect you when you make these decisions that you actually know what you're talking about. I said, okay, what is that involved? And they said, well, we're, we have a lot of jobs right now out in like the Murrieta, Rancho California area out there where it's like 190 in the winter, like out there. And um, what we want you to do is show up tomorrow you're going to need to have a tool belt and work boots, and we're going to send you out into the field, and you're going to do this physical labor with these guys. So I went home and said, hmm, tool belt and work boots. I went and bought a tool belt. I thought, I wonder what goes in these things. I didn't have any tools to put in my belt, but I had a tool belt. And then I remembered, you know what, I have work boots. And the reason I have work boots is not because I've ever done any actual work in my life. But the reason I have work boots is because my dad used to be an electrician once upon a time, like back in the Depression or something, right? And, and I remember that he had a, a pair of boots that was in decent shape. And so I always kept them in case I ever needed to like pretend, like dress up for Halloween as a worker or something like that. And so I had these boots and I thought, okay, at least I have the boots. So I... I showed up the next day with my shiny new tool belt and my boots. And we go out into the field, and we're just starting to do this stuff, and they're showing me around. And as I'm walking, my foot feels weird, and I look down, and the soles of my shoe are breaking off in pieces. They've been sitting in a closet for literally like 30 years. And so, so they're rotten. They've literally rotten. So as I walk, I'm leaving chunks of the sole of my shoes all on the ground until within almost no time at all, all I had was the tops of my shoes and my bare feet, right? 
And so I said, well, this isn't going to work. And it was embarrassing, right? Because the guy I'm working with is the foreman and I'm going to be his boss. And he's just laughing at me. And, and he has to take me to like Walmart to buy a new pair of boots in the middle of the day. So that's how I got through day one. Day two, it was literally about 115 degrees and we're out there. And what they have us doing is um, these power poles. They have us pulling power poles out by hand. And so at the, there's a way that you lift them out and they fall on the ground. These are 24-foot-long power poles. And then what you do is the, there's a guy in the front and you help him lift it and he gets it up on his shoulder. And the guy in the back lifts it down like this and he holds it here. And the guy walks up to the trunk to the truck and you slide the pole up onto the rack, right? Seems easy, except it's 115 degrees, and I'm a fat guy who's used to sitting behind a desk. And if you haven't noticed, I'm translucent. <laughs> like, the sun beats down on me, and it's just like, I turn bright red. It's horrible. And so I'm out there, and I'm literally thinking, I might die. I, my heart is not doing well. My skin is burning red. I am getting heat stroke. And I finally said to the guy, I said, listen, we need to go get some lunch. And he goes, well, listen, there's only two more poles, and it's 20 minutes to get to the closest place to eat. So let's just get these two poles, and we'll be out of here. I said, okay, I'll try. So we go into this yard. We pull out this pole. He puts it up on his shoulder. I lift it up, and I'm walking out, and I feel my knees just beginning to get wobbly. And I drop the pole, and it hits the concrete which causes the front of the pole to smack him in the side of the head. And he tries to grab it, and it pulls the fingernails off his hand. I know, great, right? And I'm laying on the pavement going, and and he's like saying words in Spanish that I can't repeat here today. And and, um, he's bleeding, and the pole's on the ground, and the concrete is cracked, and I'm laying on the ground, And the thought that goes into my head is, I don't belong here. (laughs) Here's the thing. I was part of the company. I had a name tag and a badge and a time card and all those kind of things. But I was nowhere near prepared for the assignment that was given to me. And as a result, I messed it up big time. As Christians, there are a whole bunch of us who are out in the workforce, and we think that we're well-trained for what we do. I'm, a, I'm a, a, an accountant, and I have an accounting degree, and therefore I do accounting, and I, I know how to do that. Or I'm a secretary, and I do secretarial work, or I'm a plumber, and so I do plumbing, and I know all about plumbing, or whatever it is that you do. And we think we're really prepared for the workplace, but here's what I want to say, and here's what I think the Word of God is saying to us. There are too many of us that go off into the workplace every single day, and we are nowhere near prepared for the assignment that God has for us there. And so as he gets really um, up in our face in Ephesians chapter 4 and starts challenging us with things, he's going to talk to us today about our work life. And that's a good thing because we spend 65% of our waking hours working. It's important for us. It's a big part of our lives. So if we're going to lay a foundation for this, we can do it in page one of the Bible. So open your Bibles to page one. Genesis chapter one, verse one. And we're going to begin understanding what God wants us to think about work by reading the first page of Scripture. The very first thing we learn about God is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. 
And here's what it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the very first glimpse we get of this God that the whole book is going to be about, the very first glimpse we get of him, what is he doing? He's working. He's creating. And so he is, by the power of his, um, of his words, creating the universe. And that's the first thing that we find him doing, this God of ours. He's a creating God. He's a working God. So I don't know what picture you get in your mind when you think of God. I don't know if you get the, the old man in the rocking chair stroking his beard, and that's what you think of when you think of God. Or maybe you think of the European Jesus with blonde hair and blue eyes, and that's your picture of God. Well, I want to add a picture to your scrapbook. When you think of God, I want you to picture God in a pair of overalls with a tool belt. Because it is a part of his nature to work. He doesn't just work sometimes. We're going to see here in Scripture that he always works. We have a working God. Now go to Genesis chapter 2 and look at verse 1. After he gives us this brief explanation of the days of creation, here's what he says, chapter 2, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from his work, which he had created and made. So not only do we have this work in God, but he also rests. And the obvious reason that he rests is because he's probably tired, right? Wrong. God doesn't get tired. God is all-powerful. There was never a time when God put his hand to his brow and said, Oy vey, I got to sit down. That never happened. God has never been in a situation where he needed to be rejuvenated. In fact, God doesn't need anything. So God never rests. Now, God works and, and never needs rest, and yet he rested on the seventh day from his creation. Why would he do that? Because he's setting an example for us. We're not all-powerful. We're not immortal. He rested so that we would know that we were created to work and to rest. He worked for six days and rested on the seventh day as an example to us. The interesting thing is the American dream is to not work six days and rest one. It's to rest six days and maybe work one, right? That's what we have in mind. And yet God, who made us in his image, is a working God. I want you to see how far this goes. Turn to the New Testament, the Gospel of John. Fourth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Go to John chapter 5. And listen to what Jesus says about God's nature. John chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus speaking. But he answered them, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. And if you read it in the Greek, it, it says, my father has always been working and is working now. That's the tense in the Greek. So there's never been a moment in which God has not been working. And what does Jesus say he's doing? I'm working. So we have this working God. I want you to go to the book of Colossians. If you know where Ephesians is, it's two books past there. Go to Colossians and go to chapter 1. And in Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, look what it says. 
Speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth. So when it says in Genesis 1.1 that God created the heavens and the earth, who's it talking about? Jesus. Okay, don't think of Jesus as not coming along till the New Testament. He was working in creation. All things were created by him, um, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That, by the way, is a fascinating verse. If we had time, I would spend a ton of time on that verse, but we don't. It says, in him, Jesus, all things hold together, visible and invisible. You know, we know now because of powerful microscopes, we can now look at subatomic particles in a microscope, right? And we now can see how atoms work and molecules work, and we know about neutrons and electrons and protons and how they move around so that everything holds together. And, and we see how cells hold together, and we see how atoms hold together, and, and everybody, uh, scientists all agree that these things hold together. What they don't understand is why. Nobody has any idea what makes them hold together. Why do the protons and electrons and neutrons work the way that they do just to hold everything together? Because literally, if that stopped happening, the things at a subatomic level, it's, if it stopped happening, all matter would suddenly dissolve. Nothing would hold together. You couldn't hold together. Your chair wouldn't hold together. Nothing physical would hold together if it wasn't for the way things work at the atomic level. These invisible things that we can't even see, how do they hold together? Colossians says, he holds them together. That he is working, holding everything together. He never stops working. You go, well, what does this have to do with me on Monday morning? I want you to understand you were made in the image of a working God. You were created by God for work. It tells us that in, in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. It tells us that in Genesis 2, that, we were, that when he placed Adam and Eve in the garden, he gave them assignments. They were to reign over all of creation. They were to take care of all of creation. And they were to tend the garden which is interesting because that's work, right? And we tend to associate work with sin. We think work is part of the curse because he cursed Adam and he said, you're going to have to, by the sweat of your brow, make your bread, right? You're going to have thorns and thistles that are going to choke out the plants. And we think that work is the curse. Work is not the curse. Thorns and thistles are the curse. There was work always. He always created man to work. Now, I want you to go to one more passage in Colossians chapter 3. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Once again, we tend to think of it this way. There's a lot of things I do, but some of them I do for God. Most of what I do, I do for me. Some of what I do, I do for other people. And then there's a little bit, whatever's left over, that's for God. Some of my money is set aside for God. Some of my time is set aside for God. Some of my attention is set aside for God. But the rest is mine. And God says, no, 
in everything that you do, do all to the glory of God. Is it possible to change a diaper to the glory of God? I'm not sure it's possible to change a diaper for any other reason. Is, is, it, is it possible to, to sell a house for the glory of God? Is it possible to write an article for the glory of God? Is it possible to type up a report for your boss for the glory of God? He says, and whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Your work is your way of praising God. So how do we get our work life on track? Let's get practical. I'm going to give you four things. The first one is this. You need to change your boss. Some of you are thinking, amen. <laughs> How many times have I said that myself? If I could just change my boss, work would be so much better if I didn't have this jerk as a boss, right? Well, this is a great day for you because you are going to get to change your boss. Look at, um, we're still in Colossians 3, go to verse 22. Here's what he says. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality." He goes, you think your boss is the guy in the office down the hall. He's not. Your boss is sitting on the throne of your heart. The Lord Christ is your boss. It's him that you serve. And you go, oh, you don't understand. You don't understand my job. My job is awful. My boss is awful. You don't know how hard it is. Really? I don't want to break up your pity party or anything, but this is addressed to slaves. He says, slaves. Someone who has no freedom, someone who is treated like a piece of property, slaves, you should serve your masters in this way. If that is true for slaves, what's my excuse? He says, the Lord Jesus is your boss. And guys, I'm not talking about a little mind game that you could play with yourself to feel better. I'm talking about actual reality. The guy in the corner office is not your boss. Jesus Christ is your boss. You're allowed to have one Lord, and your heart has room for one throne. The interesting thing is that boss, Jesus, tells you to submit to earthly authority. And so that person whom God has seen fit to place over you in your company is somebody that you serve, not just to please him, but to please God who is in heaven. And he tells us too, by the way, that there's a reward system. This, your boss is watching, right? Don't we all work a little harder when our boss is watching? He, he says, your boss is watching. Your boss is the Lord, and he's watching, and he will give you an inheritance based upon your work. And by the way, there's also consequences based on your poor work. So we better take our work seriously. But even still, we're not working for the reward. We're working, it says, for the Lord. And by the way, statistically, 90,000 hours of your life is going to be spent in the workplace. And we're told to do it for the Lord. You know what that 90,000 hours of experience is? Your resume for heaven. You walk into heaven and God says, 
uh, I'm going to consider you as a steward, and I'm going to reward you based upon your stewardship, and I'm going to welcome you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. You are building your resume right now in your workplace. You're going to have to just change your boss. Second thing you're going to need to change is you're going to need to change your assignment. You may think that your job is hell. And here's what I will tell you. What better place to send a missionary? If I was to tell you, what, so think about this. Those of you who really struggle in your workplace, think about this. What if I was to tell you that, to, that this Monday, tomorrow, God is going to send a person to your work who is going to just by their attitude and their presence and the way they do things, make the place so much better. He's sending somebody. He has heard your prayers. He is sending someone to your work this Monday who is going to make the place so much better. You would go, yay. But if I told you that person is you, you go, oh, boo. I don't want to be the solution. I just want to complain about the problem. Do you understand what it is to be a Christian light in a dark world? It means that he sends us out as sheep among wolves and asks us to serve them. We are the solution. See, you may think your assignment is to be a, a painter or an architect or, you know, a policeman or a teacher or a student or whatever it is that you are, but I'm here to tell you that your assignment is to be a representative of the Most High God. Your assignment is to edify people and glorify God. And when we get that straight, it changes everything about the way that we look at the workplace. I'm going to tell you a story that I'm not proud of. Shortly after I got married, again, trying to find ways to support my family and all of that, um, uh, my, my whole extended family was in the car business. My dad owned car dealerships, and I always wanted to stay out of that business, but, but uh, you know, I needed a job that paid better, and I went to work selling cars, and I did that, and I was really good at it. And so we, we bought another dealership, and, and uh, my dad and my two brothers and myself ran this place, and, um, and I'll... And what happened is every day we'd go to work, and we all worked real hard. We're trying to make this thing go. And every day we'd go to work, and, and that work environment was just toxic. It was just negativity. It was foul language. It was a crass subject matter. It was people who had no interest in being honoring to God. And there I was sort of floating in that pot of negativity every day. And because of the hours that I was working, I also was not very involved in church my walk with God began to weaken, and I began to just sort of be a part and blend in. And I will never forget this day that I was sitting there with my dad and my older brother, who at the time, neither one of them knew Jesus, and I was so excited to have an opportunity to be a witness to them. And I was sitting there with both of them, and one of them said something, and I told a dirty joke. And my brother's response was this. He said, remember when Doug used to be a nice Christian guy? <sighs> and my heart sank. Because I had been given this opportunity to be light in the darkness, and instead I was contributing to the darkness. And it was a wake-up call for me. See, we have to realize 
Your assignment is not what your boss says it is. It's what Jesus says it is. And we carry out the things that we do in our, in our work for the glory of God. Third thing, real quick. You have to change your purpose. Why do you go to work? What, what's the purpose for you being there? Ask yourself that question. If we're honest, most of us who have jobs would say, I need the money. I go for the paycheck. If I didn't need the money, I wouldn't do it. And here's what I want to suggest. The paycheck is not your purpose. Are you there to get a paycheck? Are you there to build your own resume? Are you there to build your own kingdom? Or are you there for some purpose that's greater than that? You were put on this earth to edify people and glorify God. Go back to Ephesians 4.28. Look what it says. Ephesians 4.28. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Even the reason you need a paycheck is not the reason you think. What does the scripture say? God provides for the sparrows and the lilies. He knows what you need. You seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. You don't have to go to work to get the paycheck. You know why you're at work? One of the reasons is so that you can have those resources so that you can use them for God's purposes. This comes down to a heart of giving. That, that when we work, not only are we there investing in the people that are there, but the resources that come from our work are meant to be invested in God's kingdom as well. And so ask yourselves this. When it comes to giving, like just putting money in the offering plate, when it comes to supporting missionaries, when it comes to sponsoring a child in another country who's in need, when it, when it comes to just generally being helpful to people, just taking care of needs in your neighborhood or any of those kinds of things, do you ever realize when you're at work and having a really bad day that one of the results of this is that God is giving you resources that you get to share with people? It's the opposite of stealing. Now you're working and sharing it with people. God's just not calling us to stop stealing. He's calling us to repent. That means go back in the other direction and do the opposite of what we were doing. Fourth thing, and we'll wrap it up. Work like it really matters to God because it does. I, I ran across this quote this week, and I don't even know who to attribute it to because it wasn't attributed, but it's a fantastic quote, so I'm going to just steal it, and if anybody asks you, just attribute it to me, Okay. Here's what it says. Don't commute between your spiritual life and your vocational life. Isn't that good? Let me say that again. Don't commute between your spiritual life and your vocational life. You ever had a job where you have a long commute to and from work, right? And, and, and you're on your way to work and it takes an hour and a half to get there and you're sort of gearing up and getting ready for work and as you're coming home, you have like an hour and a half to sort of decompress and get ready for being with your family. You're commuting, and you're going from one world to the other. We need to stop commuting spiritually. We need to realize that we are the same wherever we are. We are children of God, whether we're at work, whether we're at home, whether we're at school, whether we're in a worship service, wherever it is. Because, see, too many of us actually give the worst of ourselves in the workplace. We generally, what we do, honestly, if we're just going to be honest, generally what we do is we put our best face on for church and we give our worst face at home and in the workplace. 
We want the people at church to think highly of us. We want to look righteous. We want to look godly. We don't want anybody to judge us. We want to be accepted. We want to look really spiritual. So we do our best and put on our happy face and we go to church and someone says, how are you doing? And we go, praise the Lord. But if somebody asked you on Monday morning in the workplace, how are you doing? You wouldn't say, praise the Lord, would you? We put on our best face for church. So here's what I want to say about that. We've got it backwards. If you need a place to be at your worst, let it be here with us. We'll love you anyway. We will accept you anyway. We understand you've had a hard time because you've been out there serving and just getting beat up in the world, and you need a place to just be cared for and ministered to. You come to church on Sunday morning grumpy, I am all for it. In fact, I think we're going to rope off a section right over here, just grumpy people, right? You come on Sunday and you're grumpy, we'll just put you in that section. You can all growl at each other, and then the rest of us will just worship, right? It's okay to be yourself with us. But guys, you got to put on your best self when you're out in a world that's watching you and judging Jesus by how they see you. we got to get this right. See, God created you for work. He's a working God. So you reflect Him in the workplace. He's your boss. He's given you a job, given you an assignment, given you a purpose. So if you're going to walk like a grown-up, you're going to have to do it at work. Everything in the Christian life is about worship, especially work. Everything. How different would this world be if every Christian took his work that seriously and saw it as a way to edify people and glorify God? You can be a part of a movement. And that movement starts tomorrow morning when you clock in at work. You could be a different person, the person that God created you to be in the workplace. And as you do, people will be edified and God will be glorified. Don't miss that chance. May everything you do be done for the glory of God. Let's stand together.